Welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Cheney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Cheney, Galuzzi, and Howard, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, its executive committee, and its legislative committee. I'm also a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. And finally, I serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors, the CBA Executive Committee, and the CBA Young Lawyers Division's Executive Council. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for lawyers, for young lawyers and law students. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. And with that, let's jump right in. Uh, our guest today I'm really excited about is uh, Philip Nickerson. Philip graduated from Baylor University in 2012 before pursuing a JD MBA from the University of Denver where he graduated in 2017. He worked for a firm in Texas before clerking for federal magistrate Cato Cruz for the past two years. He recently joined the firm of Cohen Black. Finally, he is an active member of the CBA YLD Executive Council. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you for coming on. It's a a real pleasure. Uh, Why don't we just uh, start off by talking a little bit about you, kind of where are you from and kind of how'd you get here? Yeah, so um, I'm a Texas boy, born and raised. Uh, Don't hold that against me. (laughs) I know we get a bad rap up here in Colorado. It's uh, tough. You got to make sure who you're talking to. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But Texas boy, born and raised. Um, I was born in a a suburb of Austin called Pflugerville and then uh, spent about half of my life there before moving to a really small town uh, called Cameron, um, Cameron, Texas. It's just south of uh, Waco, Texas, which is where I ultimately went to uh, college at Baylor. Okay. Okay. And uh, what, uh, what brought you to Baylor? Why Baylor, I guess? You know, it was, um, it was a little bit about just being close to home. I think I really wanted to get out of state, but, uh, my, my mom, I was the, her oldest son and she was like, you're not leaving me. You're not going out of state. <laughs> That's not happening. Mama's not put happening. Foot down. Yeah. So, uh, you know, she promised to buy my groceries every once in a while if I was close. Uh, so that's a bad deal. Not a bad deal. Not a bad deal. <laughs> um, but in reality, the decision really came down to just the program, um, that I ultimately majored in, which was their sports sponsorship and sales program. It was, the only program of its kind at the time in the country. Um, and it focuses on, you know, sports marketing and sales, uh, kind of the B2B side of things and the business of sports. And I just thought that was fascinating. Um, you know, grew up playing sports, love sports to this day and thought that it would be an awesome, uh, awesome career path. And when you went to Baylor, uh, were you thinking that you might become a lawyer one day? Was that kind of on the horizon or was that something that kind of developed later? Absolutely not. Um, so <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't know any attorneys growing up. Um, I, living in a small town, like we didn't have any law firms. Um, to the extent we had a law firm, it was the, the DA's office. And that just happened to be because we were in you know, the county seat right. uh, for a small uh, rural county. So I, I didn't know any attorneys um, growing up. I didn't know what went into being a lawyer. Um, to the extent I had, you know, ideations of becoming an attorney one day, it, they were planted in my head by 
uh, you know, teachers from time to time, but they were just that they were ideas or comments and, you know, kind of filed away in the back of my mind. Uh, so going to Baylor, I, I completely thought I was going to be, you know, in the business of sports and on the, the back end and behind the scenes of, of sports teams um, for my entire life. Did was there a specific moment in time where that shifted or was it kind of a gradual change to thinking, hey, maybe law school is something that I should kind of check out? Yeah. So um, after I graduated uh, from Baylor, I, I moved to Washington, D.C., where um, I was working for Monumental Sports and Entertainment. They're the parent company for the the Capitals, the Wizards and the WNBA oh, team. Oh, cool. Yeah. OK. OK. Yeah. So that was um, that was a lot of fun um, and a really unique experience, I would say. Um, but while I was there, one of the great things about that organization and that company is they do a lot of lunch and learns for um, all levels of their their support staff. And nice. one of those lunch and learns was with um, one of the newer assistant GMs uh, for the Capitals. He had just helped negotiate the deal for uh, Alexander Ovechkin's uh, big contract. So they were like, well, let's get him in here and, you know, rile these guys up. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So we got to ask questions about, you know, what went behind the deal. And one of the questions that I just happened to ask because I got, you know, pointed at, it's like, Philip, it's your turn. Sure. Was, uh, you know, where did you get your negotiating principles? Like, how did that kind of come to fruition? And he let slip that he had been an attorney um, and had an entire career up until, you know, two or three years before that day um, as an attorney at Latham and Watkins. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of interesting. And this light bulb went off in my head. I was like, he became an attorney. Hey, I wonder, wonder how that happened. So after, you know, the formal presentation, um, you know, I kind of pulled him aside and was like, Hey, tell me about your career. Like, how are you in sports now? But also how did you become an attorney? And he kind of laid out the steps to, you know, taking the LSAT, applying to, to law schools. And these were things that I'd never heard of before. I didn't know what the LSAT was. I actually went home and Googled like what it stands for. <laughs> um, fair, fair. And, um, and at that point, um, you know, I was like, well, that's neat. Maybe I'll do that one day. But it, it was really a moment while I was um, interacting with one of the clients. Of, it was a season ticket holder. Um, and she was just kind of telling me her struggle, um, a, a middle-aged, uh, African-American woman who, um, a single mother. So it kind of reminded me of my mom. Um, and she, she was struggling to make ends meet, but it was my job to get her to go ahead and buy some new season tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I was having a conversation, trying to work with her and giving her all the sales pitch, doing my job. And then finally I was just like, look. I get comp tickets. I'd love for you to have those, like come out to a game, bring your kids and let's just chat. Right. And we did. And she started talking to me about some of the legal issues that, uh, she was you know dealing with at that time. And it really kind of was one of those, um, you know, heartbreaking moments. Here we are in this, you know, beautiful stadium, watching sports, people are cheering. And this lady's on the verge of tears talking about some really traumatic events that she went through and her struggle with the legal system. And, so this conversation was had, you know, a couple of weeks after I talked with the assistant GM. Right, right. And I was like, I, I can do this. I can help her. And I, I now know what I need to do to get to a point where I can uh, help her, you know, on the legal side of things. And so um, 
that that was kind of like my aha moment. And from that moment on, literally a couple of months later, I put in my resignation and um, moved back to Texas and started studying for the LSAT. Wow, man, what a cool story and so much to kind of unpack there. You know, one of the uh, themes that we've kind of had uh, on several episodes with several guests is that it's okay to not necessarily have your path all figured out on day one. Like it's okay to, you know, be pursuing one thing and then to have this kind of moment or an event or a conversation that kind of just, you know, falls into your lap and have that kind of shift your focus and kind of shift um, your your career path. And so it's really interesting to kind of hear you talk about that. The other thing I think it really important to highlight is what a cool company to have these lunch and learns for, you know, all of their different employees, um, you know, people that are, you know, maybe lower on the totem pole to come in and kind of see these people who have kind of done all these cool things um, and then to have such a large impact kind of on your life. You know, sometimes people kind of dismiss like the career day or, you know, that kind of stuff. And to have that and to see how that, you know, directly kind of linked to you being here today uh, is really a cool story and a really a, a great reminder to any companies that happen to be listening. I don't know how many listen to our <laughs> podcast, but if they do, do cool stuff like that because you too can influence the lives of young people. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> so, um, so obviously that, that's kind of how that brought you. So what brought you to um, DU and um, did you know from the beginning you wanted to do an MBA JD combo or was that something that you kind of added on later? So uh, when I applied um, for law school, I, I didn't really know where to look. You know, there's the T14s and I was like, okay, I, I don't necessarily want to go there. Um, not for any particular reason other than you know, honestly, imposter syndrome. I was like, I just decided I want to be a lawyer. Like if I'm going to go to Harvard Law or UCLA or something like that, like I feel like that's reserved for people who have known they wanted to be an attorney, <laughs> right? right? Um, and, you know, in hindsight, like that's totally the wrong way of thinking. Um, so any future attorneys, if you're listening, don't think that way. Um, but, you know, so I, I didn't aim that high, um, but I kind of aimed within my region and the areas that I was familiar with, knowing that law school was going to be a challenging endeavor. Um, I went ahead and applied to, you know, Baylor again, um, UT Law, University of Houston, and then a couple of uh, like just two schools outside of the state of Texas, one being uh, University of Denver. And that was solely because of this beautiful front range view that we have. Right. And access like, to the mountain. I could live there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like being the young, naive guy who, you know, enjoyed being active, physically active. I was like, you know what? Like if I'm going to torture myself for three years, because at the time, and this gets to your other question, I was only thinking I was going to be doing my JD. Um, but I was thinking to myself, if I'm going to be in law school for three years and, and study my, my brains out, Every once in a while, I want to be able to go up to the mountains and just go on a hike and just refresh. Right, right. There's right. nowhere better to do that than Colorado, as as you know, and yeah. as a lot of our a lot of these listeners know. Um, and certainly, no place. There are some places to do it in Texas, but like, I didn't feel like sweating profusely to go not quite the same right not yeah. quite the same like it's it's either stress in the classroom and sweating and being worried about getting called on and cold called <laughs> on or you know go sweat outside and then just feel really stressed that way so I was like let's let's look at Colorado and ultimately I applied and uh, was really lucky to get a scholarship opportunity that just made the the financial uh, decision um, really work out 
Awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, your career path. So you get accepted into DU. Um, what types of, of internships or law clerks or jobs did you kind of do while you were in law school? Uh, so um, I knew that I was I was paying my way through law school, so I was always looking for some kind of paid work. And right. as a first-year law student, uh, you know, that's really hard to come by. I was lucky to... Um, you know, have some kind of odds and end jobs that weren't legal related um, the second half of my first year. And then um, after my the conclusion of my first year, I actually traveled abroad and then went to um, and worked in Istanbul, oh, uh, wow. in Turkey. Yeah, working for Postacoglu, um law firm there. It's a Parisian-based law firm with offices in, uh, obviously, France, Italy, and then Turkey. And so they kind of market toward uh, and and they're known for being transactional attorneys that are able to kind of operate and be a bridge between Europe and uh, the middle East and North Africa. What was that like? I mean, what, what, how did you even, I guess, find that opportunity? That, that, that sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, the precipice of like the idea of like even going abroad for your know, first year was kind of like me kicking myself for not studying abroad in undergrad. Oh, that um, is one of my biggest regrets. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're listening, I don't know how many not high school students we have here, <laughs> but when you go to college, study abroad. Definitely. Do it. Uh, do it. <laughs> um, so it was that wanting to, to be abroad and get an illegal experience outside of the United States. Um in part because I was always interested in international business too, right? And so it was kind of forecasting and thinking, hey, you know, maybe I can get involved on the transactional side of being an attorney, still not really knowing what an attorney was. Um, and this would be a great opportunity to open a lot of doors to, you know, being an international business attorney. That just right. sounds cool saying it. It does. International it does. Sounds business great. Attorney. Yeah. Um, shout out to international business attorneys. Listening. <laughs> um, you have a great title. But so I, that that's kind of what I was thinking about. And I ultimately talked to um, Anakus Worsema, who's now a dean of, um, I think, international, I'm going to butcher it, but um international law effectively or mm -hmm. students affairs, something of that nature at DU mm. I've kind of lost track of her title. Um, but I spoke with her and she kind of got me in connect, uh, connected to a couple of different organizations through different law schools that provided these learning and working opportunities abroad. And so it was part of her program. Um, and I got hooked up with this firm. And then I also was, um, you know, trained and taught in, uh, doing business in the Middle East, so studying all the domestic laws of, you know, Kuwait and the North African um, countries, as right. well as you know Sharia law and yeah. how that you know alters the the business models and how businesses are structured um, in those countries for foreign investments specifically. Wow, that is fascinating. That might be one of the coolest jobs that we have heard yet on <laughs> on, on the podcast. And our sound guy Rick, he's nodding. I think I think that might be. One of the coolest jobs that we have heard of that, that that's really what a great opportunity. Man. Yeah. Um, so uh, when did you decide to kind of add the, the MBA? Uh, you know, was that when did that kind of come about and, and, and why did you choose to do it? So it was after um, after that summer, actually, I, I started thinking, you know, having my MBA is going to be in my future at some point. Um, and I can't recall if it was, you know, that first semester of effectively my 2L year or maybe the second semester of my 2L year when there was a uh, a free lunch at DU and somebody <laughs> was talking about the dual degree programs and how to apply 
And, um, you know, they mentioned the Daniel School of Business and the MBA program there and how there are a lot of synergies. And it just started, I started like, you know, piecing together in my mind, like, hey, like if I really want to, you know, be uh, an attorney who does international business, which I was still thinking at the time, then being able to really have this foundational knowledge and um, you know, finances, accounting, um, the management of companies, understanding how these, you know, C-level and C-suite executives are making decisions and determinations about how to um, structure their deals and, and how to structure employment agreements and all those things, that's going to be really vital and, and a huge asset to me whenever I go to a firm. Um, and, you know, I had some ruminations that maybe I wanted to be a litigator too. <laughs> um, and, and so I knew that, you know, commercial litigation would require, you know, some baseline knowledge of, uh, some of these financial documents, things like that, that come up in, uh, litigation from time to time. And right. so I just thought it'd be an awesome, uh, tool and a valuable asset. It sounds like you kind of were interested in a little bit of everything. Uh, I, I still am. <laughs> it's just like, oh, dabble here, dabble there. Still oh, litigation am. would be cool. International business would be cool. Yeah. Sports stuff would be cool. <laughs> it's, uh, hey, but that's great, though. And, and again, I think that's really important for people listening is like, it's okay to not have it all figured out. You know, yeah. not, I think there's this myth that most people who go to law school, like, know exactly that they were always going to be lawyers. And once mm -hmm. they get there, they know exactly what they want to do. And they take all the, the classes that they hit all the requirements and they go get the job they always envisioned. Yeah. And it's funny because we've had, I don't know, maybe 10 people on uh, the podcast now. And I don't think a single one of them has ever actually said that every yeah. one of them is like, well, I took the, kind of non-traditional route and then this happened. And I think I'm like, I think the non-traditional route is, is the traditional, traditional route. Yeah. That is, that is what people do these days, you know? Yeah. Well, and like I, at the time, like I kind of bemoaned the fact, I was like, man, like I'm not going to graduate with, you know, the class that I came in with and, you know, you have FOMO and missing out and all this stuff. But then, and so I was bemoaning the fact that I didn't have these ideas in my head earlier and that I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And that I was still a little up in, up in the air and iffy right. about that. Um, but in hindsight, I'm like, that's the beauty of it, right? I got to experience all these different things and really come to a place now where I'm comfortable with the direction that my career is heading because I know what's out there and I know what works for me and what doesn't work for me and the type of environment that I want to be in and the type of practice I want to have. So um, I'm grateful for not knowing. Right. Now. Um, it's funny how life just kind of works out. You yeah. Know? You just you just stay open to opportunities. You know, uh, pay attention to see when doors are opening, and you know, sometimes you just got to walk through them. Yeah. Um, well, let's turn to uh, one of our, our two uh, kind of main topics we want to talk a little bit about today. Um, we had a federal magistrate uh, Cato Cruz on the program um, a few episodes ago. Uh, awesome guy. And I know that you have just finished up a, a two-year clerkship uh, clerking for him. Uh, what was that like, I guess, just to start broad? Oh, man. Um how much more time do we have? <laughs> it, it was it was phenomenal. One word, phenomenal. Um, for any number of reasons, um, not the least of which, and probably the most important of which, is um, just the person that that Magistrate Judge Cruz is. Um, I I highly encourage, and I take this time to say, you know, if anybody's litigating in front of him, I you should take the time to get to know him once your case is over. Um, any young attorneys out there who are looking for mentors mentorship, um, you should reach out to him. 
Um, maybe he'll kick me later for all the emails that he might get because of this, but like, I mean it because he's that valuable of, uh, of a person, just uh, of a person. And so being, having the privilege of working with him, uh, and the unique experience of getting to see him grow and get his and gain his, uh, legal voice, if you will, or his judicial voice, if you will, um, over the, the past two years was, um, inspiring, uh, as well as very informative. And hopefully, I don't think he'll mind though, because when he was on here, he actually gave out his email address and told people to email him. So yeah. uh, that is uh, definitely recommended and okay. Uh, so don't be shy. Uh, send that email, grab that coffee. Well, maybe not yet because of COVID, <laughs> but eventually maybe you're going to be able to grab that coffee. That Zoom meeting. Um, so tell us a little bit, um, because I know that we have a lot of listeners that are interested in, in clerking. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually just had Laura Wolf on, who was, I think, our first uh, clerk uh, that we had on. And, and she talked a little bit about it. She clerked for uh, Federal Judge Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the application process like to kind of... Um, become a clerk for Judge Fed, uh, yeah, Magistrate Cruz, and is it is it different than applying for an Article Three judge? Is there like a whole separate process, or is it all kind of lumped in together? I really know nothing about it. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that. So my application process was non traditional, okay. okay. <laughs> but but I'll kind of generally and more broadly talk about what the application process looks like sure. for um, well, just federal courts because that's the experience that I have. So. Um, for those who are unaware, there's this, um, the federal court system has this website called oscar.gov, uh, and you can go on there and it, it is basically a, a job board for all clerk positions, um, federal clerk positions that are out there. Now I say all, but that it requires a judge to actually submit the, the opening there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that a large, large majority of federal judges, Article Three and Article One, or magistrate judges, um, post their their openings on that platform. So, if you are a law student, or um, you know a young attorney, or a, an older attorney who's looking to you know transition into you know being maybe perhaps a career clerk and, and making clerking your career, typically you see judges planning a year or two in advance of an opening. Mm-hmm. So if you're you have to kind of forecast out and be you know in tune with your needs and your desires and understand that you know judges are doing the same thing. So you can go through Oscar. There's an application process. Um, as you can imagine, it's, you know, your resume, cover letters, and academic transcripts, all, all of that, writing sample, uh, lumped into one as well as references. My career, my my path to, to joining Judge Cruz's chambers was a little different. So I had interned with... Um, District Judge um, Arguello, Christine Arguello, in the yep. same district court um, during law school. And she had encouraged me to apply for um, law clerk positions after that. Um, and I was like, ah, no, I, I already know what I want to do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do it. Um, and I should have just listened to her in the first place because <laughs> it was the best move I ever made. Um, but Judge Cruz was on the bench at the time, so timing's everything, hey, right? There you go. Um, but in any event... It, while I was practicing in Texas, uh, she reached out to me to let me know that Judge Cruz was going to be uh, appointed um, and uh, for the bench. And she was like, you should look into him and consider applying because I saw, you know, during the in his interview process, she's like, there are a lot of similarities. I, I just kept thinking about you. And I was like, you need to at least meet Judge Cruz, Philip, but also um, 
you know, I want him to meet you. Right. And so, um, you know, at her behest, I put together my materials, um, completely on a whim that the next weekend, um, worked hard on them, but, you know, put them together. And then I actually emailed it to, um, Judge Cruz's firm email address because that's the only one I had. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to apply. <laughs> he wasn't on the bench; like he hadn't posted the position yet. Right, um, right. And so I was, <laughs> I, I joke, um, and and maybe it's not a joke. You have to ask him. But um, I joke that you know I, I was just lucky because I was probably the first person to apply. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, early bird gets the worm. Yeah. So you know, I sent in my application, and um, and then the rest just kind of luckily worked itself out. What is the day, the kind of day to day life of a clerk? Like, what kind of things are you doing um, for the judge? I mean, are you kind of when he's in the courtroom, you're in the courtroom, or are you kind of working on things behind the scenes? Like, what what does that kind of look like? Yeah, so I think it's I think the answer is specific to well, yeah, it's specific to not only the. Um, jurisdiction in which you're working in, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, federal court, state court, but also the level that you're working in. So appellate court or, right. um, you know, trial court, I, I can say generally across all clerkships with fair confidence that the day to day at some point involves your research and writing that you ought to always imagine. Um, within the trial court and specifically federal, federal trial court, um, it again is specific to the, each judge and how they like to run their, ch- their chambers with judge Cruz, my day to day involved, um, you know, obviously monitoring the, the, his chambers email address and all the incoming notifications of electronic filings on all mm-hmm. the cases. Um, and myself and my co-clerk, we split his docket in half. So she was responsible for one half. I'm responsible for the other. So anytime there's a filing in one of those cases, you know, I'm checking and monitoring and, uh, generally have an idea of where those cases are in their progress to ultimate resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm making sure that I'm staying on top of the needs of those cases. Um, the Typically that involves, you know, every day we see who knows how many motions for an extension of time that ultimately get referred to the magistrate judge from the Article 3 on the case, or if the magistrate judge is exercising magistrate jurisdiction, um, you know, they have the opportunity to go ahead and rule on it right away. We try to get those out as quickly as possible. Um, and then we are you know, also doing the more substantive and working on the more substantive um, drafts uh, of the orders for uh, magistrate judge Cruz. And, you know, whenever we do have hearings, um, substantive hearings, we tend to, to either listen in from behind the scenes to mm-hmm, the hearing, mm-hmm. uh, just so we're aware of kind of what's being said, usually because that's pertinent to the, the orders that we're writing. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> right? that may be important later. Yes. <laughs> um, and you know, every once in a while, we'll actually sit in, in the courtroom and observe. So, um, yeah, kind of, it's a little bit of everything, um, which is fun because it, it makes the job really right. um, interesting and, and new and exciting. So one thing I've always kind of wondered about, so let's say on a, a substantive motion, um, are you and uh, were you and Judge Cruz or, you know, if you know about, you know, other kind of setups, would you guys sit down and kind of talk about the, the issue and kind of he kind of would indicate, look, this is kind of how I want to rule. This is how I think we should rule based on my understanding of the law. And then you would go draft it. Or are you kind of recommending, like you're doing the initial research and being like, you know, hey, this is what I found. I think we need to deny this motion for summary judgment for reasons, you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, how, 
how was that process kind of work? Like what kind of came first? Yeah. So that, I mean, I think every judge does it differently and they certainly have, you know, their, their processes and how they like to, um, you know, kind of get a, an order to dock it, if you will. Uh, but I'll say that it's, it's a collaborative effort. I think in most, I think it's fair to say in most chambers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, for my process was, you know, I review the motion as soon as it's filed. And then I kind of anticipate and do a little bit of background research, uh, kind of create my notes and a uh, skeleton of what an order might look like. Um, and the issues that may be, that are kind of elicited and raised by the, the motion. And then as that motion gets briefed and ultimately is, is fully briefed, um, you know, at that point, I have a really clear idea of the realm and the box in which I'm working right. um, on this motion and, and the, de- the determinations that have to be made or that shouldn't be made um, and the legal issues that are being raised. And so it's at that point that, you know, if I need to, if I feel like I'm a little iffy here or if I want to kind of talk out um, specifically like a, you know, a really complex legal argument um, that and how I'm going to address it, I might do that with Judge Cruz. And he's fantastic about always having his door open to his clerks and, and anybody else, really. Um, and so I would go in and say, hey, look, I want to talk about this before I get you know way too far in the weeds. Um, other times, you know, it's something that either I've seen often if it's like a discovery dispute um, and something I'm familiar with um, that I have a really good idea of how Judge Cruz tends to lean on you know that type of issue um, that I'll just start drafting it and I'll just get him, you know, my final draft and he'll do what he wants with it. And then uh, ultimately it'll get docketed. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what type of, I guess not really what type, what, would you say that uh, the mentorship that you received in in a clerking position was you know kind of substantial? That's, that's kind of the thing that I, I thought of, and you know one of the reasons I kind of regret not clerking was just really developing a, a really awesome kind of mentor relationship. Uh, how how important has that been, or was that to you during the process? It it was crucial, um, and it was it was critical to my decision to clerk. I mean, like whenever the opportunity to interview with Judge Cruz came up. Um, I, it wasn't automatic in my head, at least that if he offered me a position based on the interview that I would accept it. Right. And I tell young law students this, um, and, and people who are considering clerkships this all the time, like don't just take the clerkship for the clerkship, take the clerkship for the opportunity that being in that specific chambers is going to provide you to grow. Um, and I think whenever I spoke with judge Cruz, his, and you know, I've listened to his podcast, and, and I encourage other people to go listen to it. But it's it's apparent just from talking to him for five minutes that mentorship is is a foundational you know part of his being, and. I could also tell that he was somebody that I was comfortable speaking to and somebody that I was going to uh, enjoy learning from and that I felt like I could trust um, that would have, you know, kind of my interest at heart Uh, just on the way that he kind of discussed his thoughts on how the clerkship would go and the relationship that he wanted to build with me. And so I, that, that sold me on clerking for judge Cruz. And, and so, yeah, to your point, the mentorship is, is huge. It's a huge piece and a huge benefit to clerking. And I know we say this all the time on the podcast guys, but mentor, getting a mentor, 
multiple mentors uh, yeah. is one of, if not the single most important thing you can do as a law student and a young lawyer. Yeah. Um, it was vital for me opening my firm to have several mentors in honestly several different areas. And uh, I know we've had a lot of guests on that have kind of uh, beat that horse as well, but that's because it is absolutely vital that you find people who have already done what you're trying to do or are living their life in a way that you want to live it um, or are you know, doing the things that you want to do to kind of find those people and develop those relationships. Um, kind of a transition question into our next topic, and I actually only know about this because I read your, I think it was a LinkedIn post, um, that you were uh, the only black clerk, I guess, working at the uh, federal court at the at the time, um, and you kind of talked about. Um, I think the the word that was used is kind of unicorn and kind of overcoming that, and hopefully, um, you know, working towards a society where that's not abnormal. That that's not something that somebody says, "Oh, wow, like you're the only black clerk, and we don't yeah. have to have this conversation." Um, unfortunately, we're, we're we're not there yet, so we're gonna have the conversation. What was that like? Were there were there were there difficult parts of it? Um, and and kind of can you just describe kind of what what that was like? Yeah. So um, it, it while I was at uh, and in chambers of the Judge Cruz, I was the only black clerk um, there, and I'll say that it was not difficult in that the staff and the other chambers um, and my colleagues at the courthouse. Um, they're eminent professionals and they're fantastic people and extremely in- inclusive um, and, and very much diversity minded. And so like, right. I, I never felt from my colleagues, right, right that right. that it was like a I was struggling or that or my colleagues didn't cause me to struggle. Um, but it was still isolating because although there were so many people there who I, I'm sure would have been willing to talk to me if I asked. Um, or or expressed a need to to talk through some issues related to the job or just related to the practice of law generally, um, I did not feel comfortable necessarily reaching out to to just anybody, and that's because I think I like most people I'm comfortable talking to people that I've I know that I can relate with, and there's that inherent thing in your mind that just you know I try to like you know stamp it down a little bit, but there's this thing like whenever you see someone and you identify with them immediately because you look like them, that level of comfortability, um, being comfortable with them enough to be vulnerable is, is just heightened, right? And you're able to, to have those conversations, um, that you need to have. And, and, you know, clerking people joke and they say like, it's a cushy job and it's really, and in a lot of respects, it is a cushy job. I mean, it's fantastic. Um, you don't have the stress of billable hours, all that. But there are aspects of the job that are very challenging, and there is a lot of stress there. Um, I mean, you're dealing with legal issues every single day that reasonable-minded attorneys can't agree on. Right, and you're having right. to find what the answer is and then present it to this you know, professional who has you know, reached you know, arguably the pinnacle right, of their right. career. <laughs> um, and, and that can be really stressful. Um, and and the imposter syndrome I mentioned earlier sets in. And so it's I think it's very important to to be able to have someone that you can go and talk to. And I didn't have that um, necessarily from someone who looked like me, from another, you know, African American or um, you know, biracial attorney right. um, working in the court. That said, um, my co clerk, um, I won't say her name, but she is 
so, she was so fantastic um, and, and really great to work with. She was a diverse attorney as well. And right. so we were able to just talk through things at times whenever I needed to. Um, and I wouldn't have had as successful or, or wonderful of an experience clerking without her there. So shout out to you. Awesome. Shout out to shout out to you, unknown person. Um, so I think that's actually a really great transition into kind of our next topic. So um, you uh, recently joined the uh, CBA YLD Executive Council, I believe, midterm last term. Was yes. that right? Yeah. Um, and so this is your, your first full term, I guess, uh, yeah. on the Executive Council. And um, you've been involved in some of our really uh, cool programming around uh, kind of diversity and DEI issues. Mm-hmm. Um, um, rightfully so. That has been a, a real big focus for the YLD uh, in the last couple years um, and, and the big bar as well. There's been a real push to uh, improve on a, a, a bunch of different topics related to diversity where, quite frankly, we just need to be doing better. Yeah. Um, and we're kind of starting to see that development. Can you talk a little bit about some of the types of things that the YLD is doing for young lawyers and law students in Colorado? Um, I, uh, in my role as communications director, I just <laughs> saw uh, that we have another TED Talk uh, coming mm-hmm. up that, that looks really interesting um, about uh, sponsorship and allyship. Um, can you just talk generally a little bit about what kind of the YLD or, or has been doing and, and kind of uh, what our, our, our goal or focus is on those issues? Yeah. Um, so you know, first, I'm so proud to be part of this this organization and the YLD and its executive committee uh, because of all the, the great work that they do and how responsive they are to the needs of the time. And I think that has not been... Uh, it's not any more clear than than these times right now, where we've seen a lot of you know social strife um, throughout our country. And you know, in that vein, the CBA YLD has come to the table with a lot of different opportunities to connect with and support young attorneys and law students from a number of different um, angles, if you will. They have provided uh, learning opportunities in the form of. Uh, you know, our policing, the police program that we co-sponsored with CBA, uh, or excuse me, the Sam Carey Bar Association um, and the CBA CLE as well, Mm -hmm. um, which was a really great opportunity and timely opportunity in the wake of the George Floyd death um, to talk about what is involved in um, you know, some of the laws and how some of the laws are operating to, to kind of perpetuate, um, you know, the, the deaths and the, the police shootings that we've been seeing, um, as well as what it means to, to, to be in some of the experiences of people who have been, um, you know, victim of that. And then, so we have the teaching aspect, we have the support aspect, which I would kind of, you know, lump the, the TED Talks within the kind of support for, um, you know, young attorneys and, and law students. And, and the TED Talks are really an awesome, it's multifaceted in, in the benefits, right, to, to our members. It provides a space where they can talk about some of the issues that um, they struggle with and that, or issues that can help them grow um, as an attorney and become successful um, as a diverse attorney. So, you know, we've had TED Talks on, uh, for instance, the one in August was uh, about being a diverse attorney in the times of, of COVID-19 and all the stress and anxiety that can come with that. And how do you mm-hmm. cope with those those feelings, right? Right. Uh, and then the one that we have coming up at the end of September, September 24th, um, you know, we have um, a, a fantastic panel of um, diverse attorneys who will be talking about 
um, allyship and sponsorship and and not just you know how do you find an ally within your your law firm or your office but what does an ally look like how can you be a reverse ally right we talk about reverse mentorship um, how can you be like a sponsor if you are an older attorney and what does that look like and how important is it to the development of our young diverse um, you know attorneys in this profession, right? How do we, it, we talk about, and everybody puts out statements about wanting to diversify and, and be committed to diversity. But if we're not committed to diversity within and, and, and promoting diversity within of our, within our own firms and within, I guess now our virtual walls, right, right. <laughs> um, if we're not committed to doing that, then how can we, you know, then turn and, and look and expect our clients to do it and expect the laws that, that we are, you know, upholding and enforcing and, and challenging to, to really ultimately, you know, include that as well. So we do a lot of stuff with the TED Talks in that regard. Um, and, it, you know, talking about all the different uh, benefits that that come with the TED Talks. We source our panelists from young attorneys. We have young attorneys get up and talk and share their experiences. So it not only helps them with their leadership, their thought leadership, um, but also with you know, their own you know extemporaneous speaking skills as well. Um, it allows them to to have a, a stage and this platform to get out and express themselves in a way that I think is really going we're going to see like a wave of change from the bottom up um in the way that we do and practice the law what would the role be for our listeners um and young attorneys that you know are i guess not diverse for lack of a better term so mm -hmm. uh, you know i think about my my role and obviously i am well uh, you're listening so you can't see me but i am white i am male i'm straight and able-bodied i'm about as lack of diverse um as as can be um and sometimes it can be really scary uh, to hear, not, not scary about to hear about diversity, but to attend a kind of diversity panel or a TED talk or something mm -hmm. like that as a non-diverse person. I imagine that is often what diverse people feel like every single day. And so just, <laughs> just that experience of being there and just kind of listening can be very valuable. Um, you know, but we kind of think about, you know, diversity in kind of a theoretical sense as being something that is, is good and that we want, but why is it important is uh, for, for the lawyers and kind of young lawyers as a whole to kind of be involved in these efforts and kind of to, to attend these TED Talks and to listen to diverse people and people of color and to, to hear their experiences. Because uh, in short, your experience as a white man um, or, you know, a, a white female or a young or old attorney, your experience matters. And here's why. And I think this is important. Um, diversity Oftentimes we think about it um, as how it affects specific races or uh, gender identities or anything like that. And then we kind of classify those as a monolith. And, and we can't. We can't look at someone and say, okay, you, you identify as you know, heterosexual or homosexual or you identify as black or you identify as Mexican. And as, that res you know, as a result of that, I'm going to ask you, what do black people think? What do Mexicans think? What is this? And I think that actually, although there's a lot of good intentions behind it, and even I catch myself doing this sometimes, sure. um, while those questions are good intentioned, they're inherently flawed in that you're asking someone who is an individual first and foremost to speak on issues that and represent a certain way of thinking of an entire group that they have no idea, an entire group that's made up of more individuals, <laughs> right, 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 right. And so I think 
whenever we have a collective group and this really you know beautiful group of like different shades and colors and ways of thinking we'll start to see that there are a lot of similarities right there's similarities between you and i um we could talk about difficulties of being tall attorneys right like right, yeah, something yeah, right yeah. <laughs> like but like oh, man everybody's up there like how's the air up there did you play basketball no um but 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 that's my point right therein lies my point there is there, you're going to find a way to connect with someone who doesn't look like you and once you're able to make that connection again you're able to start having conversations that are meaningful. You're able to start seeing that individual as a specific person. And once you see them as a specific person, then you can start addressing their needs, right? And then you can start seeing like, hey, here are some of the problems that they're facing and here's how I can help them, right? We, we've been trying for years and we've been talking about for years. And I'm like, honestly, as a diverse attorney and being involved in diversity, I hate the word diversity. I hear it and I flinch sometimes. I'm like, oh, there's so much to do. Right. And we've been trying and trying and trying to do and fix DEI efforts. We add letters to the end of phrases and syllables and acronyms all the time to try to say, oh, oh we got to do this, do this. We just need to talk to people and we need people to start seeing each other as individuals who have real needs. And we need to start letting down, well, first giving empathy uh, and sitting in their shoes and then also sitting down and, and really identifying how we can help that one individual. Because once we help that one individual, once you help me, I can then turn back and find other people who maybe they identify with me because you know we're both African-American. I can say, hey, you know what? A really great guy who just happens to be white actually helped me with this issue. Let me pass down that knowledge. And now that person's going to benefit. And then we're going to see the trickle down effect. And it's going to take time and it's not immediate. And some people hate that that there's not immediate change, but that's how, that's how you have sustainable change. So that, that's my answer is, is just to show up and be there and don't be afraid to make connections and don't, because those connections are going to go so far. And that's, it was a really interesting and, and, and a great answer and something that, you know, I had, I'd really been thinking about because yeah, I, I sit here and I consider myself, you know, a a progressive individual that, you know, wants to be, you know, a part of these and supportive, but it can be, you know, kind of, uh, you know, seeing here like, Oh, that, that event isn't really targeted at me. You know, mm -hmm. that's not necessarily where I belong. And I think that you make a really good point that if we're not all going to be there and, and all of these individuals from all these different backgrounds, then we're going to be missing kind of a crucial, uh, piece of the puzzle. And yeah. so, you know, I encourage, um, all of the, you know, listeners, uh, the, you know, all backgrounds, all different types, um, to really, you know, to show up and to, to hear what these people are going to say and to hear these individual stories, because it can have such a powerful impact on kind of how you view the world. Uh, it can be a great, you know, way to meet different people and mm -hmm. expand your, your social circle, networking circle, um, and really kind of everyone, um, benefits from that. And it's, it's really been rewarding. Um, I'm on the CBA, uh, the big bar executive council as well. And it's, it's really cool to see, you know, these, all of the plans that the bar has been focusing on that, yeah. like all of the work that all of these really, really awesome people, we had Ryan Payton on earlier. Um, she's amazing. And all of the work that all of these people have been doing to really drag these issues forward so yeah. that we can kind of, um, lead. And hopefully if we can get some changes in the profession, um, here that that can kind of flow out into broader society because so many people, um, kind of look to lawyers to be leaders. You know, we yeah. look to doctors to be leaders on health issues and we kind of look to lawyers to be leaders on, you know, all of these different types of like societal interaction issues mm -hmm. and legal issues and mm -hmm. stuff. And, um, 
that actually uh, kind of brings me to our, our kind of final topic today, which is kind of a lawyer's role in uh, social justice issues. So we're shooting this episode uh, in early September. Uh, it has been a hell of a year, for lack of a better term, um, with COVID and with uh, social uh, race relations and kind of uh, police brutality and criminal justice and all of this stuff just really uh, on the forefront. Yeah. Uh, and it's been it's been interesting. Um, what do you think? What role do lawyers, um, or even more specifically, lawyers of color, have? Uh, in kind of being thought leaders uh, on these type of issues and helping kind of move society forward on these topics? Wow. So there's, I think that lawyers generally um, have an obligation to kind of step away from and, and take off their lawyer hat and just use the knowledge that they've been privileged with to to further and fix the problems that they see in in the in society, and I think people of color and attorneys of color really, you know, I, I'm not going to say it's their obligation because certainly it's not. It's not their obligation any more than you know it's the next person's obligation right, to, right. to fix these issues. But I think that attorneys of color are in a unique position to to maybe have a little bit more impact uh, as thought leaders because they their communities and I think just the way that certain communities work. Um, and, and perhaps it's kind of what I was talking about earlier with the whole, you know, you want to identify with someone so you're able to be more comfortable with them. And that initial, like, aha, there's someone who looks like me and they happen to be an attorney, which means they're probably an authority on this, on the law. Um, they can explain to me what's going on and what needs to change. Well, we can be the mouthpieces to point out those issues, right? We can be the, the people who can say, Hey, look, like, here's what's wrong. Here's why the law is not working and living up to the standards that you have for it. And here's what, here's the path to, to make something better of this world and the society that we have. Here's the, here's the path to make it better for our kids so that they don't have to worry about, you know, being pulled over and, and perhaps being shot for, you know, speeding, right? Um, here's the path forward. And, and that information, I think, you know, being the information bearer and kind of watering it down and explaining these issues and, and easy to, to digest, uh, and swallow morsels, if you will, for uh, the general public is, is extremely important and a really easy way that attorneys can can kind of step into you know social justice change, uh, because once once we give the tools to people, you know it's kind of up to them to to them move forward and move that ball forward and pick up the torch just by the way that our democracy set up. And I think that that's such a great point, and I really love that analogy of kind of like easy to digest kind of morsels of mm -hmm. information because. You know, I noticed this even on like my own social media, like people, you know, as much as much crap as lawyers get <laughs> as the butt of jokes, yeah. you know, like people, you know, doctors, lawyers, like they're in a class that, that people tend to respect. They tend to respect the profession and they know the effort that it takes to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that people naturally listen to lawyers. And so when, you know, you weigh in on an issue, whether, you know, it's the George Floyd incident or, or Elijah McClain here in Colorado, mm -hmm. and you weigh in and say, look, you know, this is a problem. Why did this happen? Why did we allow this to happen? Um, you know, why, what, what are our laws that are set up that we maybe, you know, literally allowed this to happen? Um, what are kind of the broader issues that regardless of a law that, you know, 
how did we get to a place where, you know, another human being could do this to another human being and, you know, kind of think it's acceptable. And when you weigh in, you know, your friends and your social network are going to be influenced. That doesn't mean everyone's going to agree with you. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean that everyone's going to be like, oh, well, you know, Kevin or Philip <laughs> said X. So now yeah. I believe Y. Yeah. Um, but it, it does, it can really drive that conversation and it can be a way of kind of, you know, framing the issue and kind of getting out some knowledge to people. And, you know, when that happens, we can, uh, you know, move forward. And often I don't think is as fast as we would like. And the change doesn't occur overnight. Yeah. But we really begin to, to kind of crawl forward, if we will, on some of those issues. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned there, which is you know, being able to, to, to have those conversations and again, explain how the laws work like that. That's what's missing in, you know, our CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, like all of those things. Like we, they don't, they don't give us in part because it is complicated. We know, right. Um, uh, that's why, you know, people bill for, for legal advice. Um, like they don't give us the underpinnings. They don't give us the, the facts about what the law say. They don't, you know, explain it. And, and if we don't uphold, you know, arguably an ethical duty to the public to, to make sure that we're telling them, Hey, here is how the law works and, you know, apply the facts as you will make your own determination. But this is what the law says. And this is how it plays out in the courts. And this is how it affects you every single day. Then people are running around uninformed. Right. And, and they're making decisions based off of, as you know, we see right now in the nature of politics and coming up on a, you know, a, a, a new, ele- another election cycle in November, like we're going to see how politicians because they pander to the to the the, the people and, and right. how they receive information. Right. And unfortunately, it's a manner where it's, you know, the, the hot button headline kind of comments and stuff like that. But we, I feel like, can step in and say, hey, actually, here's how this works. And right. and now that you're more informed, go continue to, to listen to whatever you want to listen to, hear whatever you want to hear, but then make sure that you're applying it to, to the law as it is. And that's such a, a good point because, um, for example, and I think here in Colorado, we saw this really play out in, in the real world. And I was having this conversation uh, with Laura Wolf, who was our, our last guest. Um, for example, we have a topic uh, like qualified immunity mm-hmm. that is uh, fairly complex. I would say 95% of Americans had never even heard the term yeah. uh, and even less probably actually understood what it meant until uh, you know the George Floyd video kind of came out. And then lawyers uh, started explaining, be like, look, guys, we have this this rule that basically says that if there hasn't been the exact same conduct in a published case, that the first person who violates your rights basically can walk away Mm scot-free. And all of a sudden people are like, wait, we have what? Like we have, what's the rule? Like why why do we do that? Who came up with that? Why does that exist? (laughs) And the next thing you know, you saw out at the protests uh, signs talking about qualified immunity. Yeah. And then, you know, here in Colorado, at least then that, you know, directly led to the passage of a law that, you know, creates a new cause of action under the Colorado constitution that basically avoids the qualified immunity issue here in Colorado. And that, um, you know, obviously, you know, the, the George Floyd's, you know, death was, or, or murder, I should say, was the, uh, you know, the, the spark, but mm-hmm. it was lawyers who could then distill that concept 
into the public at large yeah. to make it a hot button issue, which in turn pressured our legislature, uh, who then responded and passed a law and, and were the f- first state to basically end that practice. Absolutely. And, and, and that's what I was talking about, right? Being able to distill things into, into morsels that, that people can then digest and go out and make a change and affect a change on. And one thing, another thing I'll add to, and this is, you know, me just kind of being, uh, optimistic in a sense, I hope that especially in this time, you know, attorneys like Laura Wolf and, and others who have, and, and Kiki Council, you mm-hmm. know, young attorneys who are out there and they're spreading the word and they're incur- and informing the public. People are going, you know, there are a lot of young people that are in the streets protesting. And there are a lot of young women. There are a lot, a, lot, a lot of young people of color, and they're going to look at the Laura Wolfs and the Kiki Councils and the the Tyrone Glovers mm-hmm. of of Colorado and of Denver who are out there and doing this this great work and informing them. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to get inspired. That's right. And they're going to say, "Wow, that person looks like me. That person." is an attorney and that person is helping change and that can alter the course, right? Circling all the way back to my initial, like how my course was altered. Like there was an attorney who just like opened the door and just like peaked my mind, like just peaked my interest a little bit. That's part of the formula. And so we, you know, I feel like we've been talking about, you know, a lot of different things here, but it all is kind of coming together for me a little bit. Like, I mean, the diversity aspect and, you know, our role in these really trying times, you don't know who you're going to affect. And you're only doing a disservice to yourself and to the community and to the future generations if you don't put yourself out there and just have that conversation. Just do the next best thing. That's something Judge Cruz would always say. He would say, suit up, show up, and do the next right thing. And so if you don't show up and do the next right thing, there's there's a whole lineage and tree of people that they are not going to to be affected in the way that they could. Such a, such a powerful concept to think about. And actually a, a great segue uh, into how I like to end every episode. Um, uh, we have a lot of young listeners out there, uh, law students, young lawyers. Um, if any of them want to get in, ta- in touch with you, either for mentorship or uh, to just talk about DEI issues or, you know, really to talk about anything, uh, taking a job in Istanbul, for example, <laughs> um, uh, do you, is it okay if people reach out to you? Is that something you're open to? Absolutely. I encourage it. Yeah. And what is the best way to get a hold of you? What's your email address? Yeah. Shoot me an email. Um, Nickerson, N-I-C-K-E-R-S-O-N, legal, um, at gmail.com. Well, thank you so much, Philip, for coming on. Uh, we could spend all day talking <laughs> about these issues, uh, but unfortunately we, uh, we have to end. But I really appreciate your time here, and I really look forward to uh, working with you uh, on uh, the Executive Council uh, in the days and months and years to come. Yeah, thanks for having me. Get legal with it.